We're talking this week with Neil Seldman. He's co-founder of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, a director of the Waste to Wealth program, which has for decades now been helping communities capture more of the value in their waste stream. Uh, Neil, I'm just so glad to be able to talk to you about this because obviously I already took up half of a staff meeting uh, trying to ask <laughs> you questions about it. So thanks for taking the time to share with the rest of the world uh, what's going on in the recycling business. Sure. My pleasure. I just had to say what, what got me so excited about talking to you about this was, you know, as you have said, as so many of us talk about in the issues we work on, these are often inherently local issues, but waste disposal is more inherently local than just about anything. Uh, but it's actually something that China changed recently, way on the other side of the world that has put recycling in the news. And so I was hoping you could start by just explaining what did China change about its recycling policies that is impacting recycling at the local level across the United States? Okay, for the last, uh, let's say, 20 years, China has been um, purchasing uh, recyclable material from the United States and using it in its industry. The, the markets in China were extremely tolerant, meaning that uh, U.S. cities and, and waste companies could ship uh, recyclables that were contaminated, sometimes up to 40%, uh, with uh, uh, either things that aren't recyclable or the process of single stream recycling, wherein everything, all recyclables are mixed in the same bin, they get transferred in the same truck, and then transferred once again uh, to larger trucks and, and overseas shipping, uh, the glass breaks, uh, the glass contaminates uh, plastic, glass shards contaminate plastic and glass. Around 2013, China announced that they were going to start cleaning up their industry and they did not want to receive contaminated recyclables from the United States. Uh, one of the reasons uh, is environmental, but the other is economic. Um, uh, labor in China has been increasing in cost and uh, the Chinese figured, well, why should they pay to clean up U.S. recyclables? So over the next few years, they uh, kept on uh, uh, restricting more and more imports from the United States of single-stream material. And in 2007, they announced a very strict policy in which they um, literally stopped taking um, U.S. imports um, through a variety of, of means. They stopped issuing permits. Uh, they uh, started requiring uh, inspections in the United States, then double inspections back in China. They limited the number of ports that the materials can come in. And the bottom line is that they, in effect, cut off purchasing sloppy recycling or single stream recycling. Um, and as a result of that, um, it really threw U.S. cities for a loop because all of a sudden the market uh, for uh, contaminated recyclables disappeared. Cities that have that use single stream, uh, excuse me, double stream systems, dual stream systems in which the paper is kept separate from the uh, other recyclables, uh, those materials are, are cleaner and are moving to markets. In fact, the Chinese have not banned U.S. recyclables from the United States. They just banned U.S. recyclables that are contaminated. And what's happening now is that uh, U.S. firms, Chinese firms mostly, and other foreign companies are purchasing facilities in the United States. Some companies, uh, Chinese companies, are building their own facilities to uh, process the plastic in the United States into pellets, uh, very clean materials that are what we call furnace-ready, meaning the 
manufacturing company that uh, imports this has the material and it's ready to go into their manufacturing process. Uh, orders for plastic uh, pellets from China are soaring, and um, the same thing is happening in paper. Chinese and other foreign investors are, are building and purchasing U.S. paper mills so that they can collect uh, paper in the United States. The U.S. Recycle, recycling stream is very, very rich uh, in good materials, and sending over either fiber or finished paper uh, back to China for internal use. Um, at the same time, the Chinese are starting, just starting, to recycle from inside their own uh, industry and economy, and uh, that is a very slow process. Uh, we've been following what's going on in Chinese cities, and the recycling programs and composting programs are uh, in their nascent stages. Sure. So, I, you know, I want to take a step back here, because when you talked about single stream, I think this is something you... I just published a piece uh, um, about sort of untangling the waste knot. And and you were talking about some of these contributing factors to why China in 2017, last year, really clamped down on the U.S. sending sort of dirty recycling materials. Um, So, you know, single stream recycling, just for folks that aren't familiar, is that's the idea that I have one big bin that I can put all my recyclables in. And the theory behind it was this makes it easier for customers to recycle, so they'll recycle more. But can you explain a little bit about why single stream has, uh, you know, first of all, been a problem in terms of the, the materials we get? In fact, you actually wrote in that piece, quote, single stream recycling has given households another garbage can. So I think pretty clearly a problem. But then also explain, uh, you talk a little bit more in the piece as well about how this contributes to consolidation of the different market players in the waste industry, which is something I think many people won't understand. Let me start by recalling how you started this interview by pointing out that uh, garbage collection and recycling is inherently local. It is inherently local. And up through the 1950s, um, garbage, uh, which is a a local responsibility uh, for either the city or the county, was uh, small mom and pops uh, uh, collecting garbage, bringing it to landfill or transfer facilities. Um, the economy of scale of a successful company was maybe five to ten trucks uh, with drivers, crews, of course, office people, and uh, it was very profitable. And uh, as people who know U.S. history, many uh, immigrant uh, uh, waves um, went into this business, garbage collection, and uh, as a result of American capitalists just not thinking it very important. Well, it turns out it's quite important. And uh, around 19, starting in the late 50s, early 60s, there were three waves of consolidation. And what consolidation meant was not um, increasing the economy of scale of operations, but um, centralizing ownership. And this happened through a massive uh, influx of capital, to a couple of companies that then started buying successful smaller companies. So that now we have uh, four companies that um, dominate uh, the national scene, probably 50 or 60 percent of the market uh, for hauling and landfill belongs to uh, four companies. Uh, The two biggest ones are Waste Management Inc. and Allied. And uh, what these companies have done uh, is to convince cities through um, uh, uh, bargaining, uh, lobbying, uh, all kinds of um, cajoling uh, to switch from dual stream uh, to single stream to make it easier for them to collect the materials. 
And um, they went this way because U.S. citizens changed the rules for recycling. Uh, citizens passed laws uh, making recycling mandatory, uh, requiring all kinds of uh, new uh, regulations to s support and nurture uh, recycling. And the uh, waste companies um, immediately uh, had to switch to recycling in order to keep their contracts. And the contracts were important because um, market share is critical for increasing your profits, not necessarily efficiency, but increasing profits. Um, and as a result, um, the concentration of capital allowed the large companies to buy up smaller companies, uh, convince cities to go to single stream, which means a big investment in capital, um, and then ship the recyclable materials to centralized processing centers uh, called MRFs, material recovery facilities, that are far out of town. So the centralization of collection and then large processing plants allowed the industry to uh, dominate recycling. And prior to that point, recycling was seen as an escape valve from the control that these companies had over garbage. And as a result of that, um, we have companies in charge of recycling that really don't like to recycle because they make so little profit. Uh, the last few years, they've actually been losing a little money. Whereas on the landfill side, um, some uh, uh, advisors we talk to uh, point out that um, profits at a landfill are in the 60-70% range um, and profits in the uh, recycling area are marginal. Uh, and in fact, recycling is a marginal part of these companies' businesses. And their interest in recycling is mass throughput, not quality. And that's what, why we had, we, that the result is single stream uh, collection, sending materials to concentrated large scale processing plants whose purpose is mass throughput, not quality recycling. Um, in that piece, I point out that single-stream recycling can be very, very effective. And I use two uh, examples, one in Boulder, Colorado, run by EcoCycle, a grassroots company, uh, and the other in, in Twin Cities, Eureka, another grassroots enterprise. And those companies operate MRFs, material recovery facilities, that um, maybe range of 200 to 300 tons per day whereas the large centralized facilities that are located out of town are processing um, 900 to 1,000 tons per day. And there's a, there was a wonderful example of this a few years ago in, in Wilmington, Pennsylvania, where a private entrepreneur um, built a composting plant scaled for 300 tons per day of source-separated organics. And they uh, were operating well. The owner made the mistake, in my opinion, of uh, accepting an investment from Waste Management Inc. and uh, uh, he proceeded to lose control over the company. As soon as Waste Management Inc. got control over the company, they scaled up the plant to 600 tons per day uh, to get more materials through to collect more tipping fees. The result was that the system broke down, uh, composting uh, did not work uh, under those conditions, the place started stinking, and within six months, the place was closed down uh, by the Delaware Department of um, Natural Resources. Um, and there was no effort to fix the plant. Uh, Waste Management Inc. just abandoned it. And it led, a lot of led to a lot of speculation that uh, the investment by Waste Management Inc. Uh, was done on purpose to shut it down. 
because Waste Management Inc., when stuff is composted, uh, it's not landfilled and they lose, uh, they lose profits. Um, that is an allegation um, that's logical given what we've seen, uh, what big waste has done, pushing incineration, pushing su- uh, single stream recycling, uh, pushing mega MRFs and mega landfills. Um, so the efficiency in recycling and waste management is in decentralization. Localize the system uh, and you save a fortune. Uh, I'll give you an example, another example from the, this time from D.C. Up until about 10 years ago, D.C. had a very good dual stream recycling system. Uh, the, the materials were collected by unionized crews. They were de- delivered to a, um, a dual stream processing plant in the city owned by a minority company with about 20, 25 workers. Well, um, for reasons that have never been explained, the city switched to single stream, which meant that company uh, went out of business. And instead of sending materials uh, to a facility in D.C. on North Capitol Street, um, they, D.C. is now sending its materials about 40 miles up the road to uh, 35, 40 miles up the road to Elk Ridge, uh, Maryland, where it is being processed. Uh, the transportation costs alone are probably about $500,000 a year that are totally unnecessary to, uh, because you don't need to ship 25,000, 30,000 tons of recyclables 40 miles when you could process them in town or across the border uh, in Prince George's County. Yeah, I was just wanted to follow up on that particular thing because one of the points that you made in your article, Neil, was that uh, the things that waste management wants to do, you know, their business is garbage, taking garbage and landfilling it or even burning it. Uh, you know, we've done a lot of work on incinerating, uh, incineration. And I'm just kind of curious, it seems like it would be more cost effective for cities to keep that stuff, to keep the waste stream local, to sort it locally. But why does it end up costing more than from these to, to buy from the or to, you know, give it to these big companies? Why do cities end up paying more to do that? I mean, you mentioned, for example, it's much more profitable. So is it the fact that they are, are able to control the market pricing and charge more for it than they should be? Or is it because of those transportation costs that you mentioned? What makes landfilling and burning garbage expensive? Well, all of the above. Uh, the transportation costs are, are considerable. Um, the, the profitability uh, in large-scale operations is that you get paid to collect the material and you get paid to process it. Um, in fact, D.C. is paying $117 a ton uh, to process its recyclables after shipping it all the way up to, um, uh, to 35 or 40 miles. Uh, so the profitability comes from the large waste companies being able to, one, convince cities to drop dual stream and go to single stream – to use their larger facilities, and also because uh, they get paid for uh, collecting, they get paid for processing. So when it comes to getting revenue from the materials on the market, they're almost indifferent because uh, they're they're getting their money from their contracts, and they need to keep recycling uh, because uh, the citizens require it, the law requires it. If they don't recycle, they'll lose their contracts. All of these factors pile together. Uh, why D.C. and other cities moved to single stream, um, I would say um, it, it's because of lobbying. It's because of uh, political donations to city council people. Um, it's everything big corporations do to move cities and move public money uh, into the private sector. And, and I think you said that as well in the piece that it's not just 
that it is more expensive when they lobby to control it in a particular way. I think you even had a a, a number in there about when when we have this concentration of waste haulers and a, a non-competitive market for recycling, that there's a fairly significant price premium that ultimately is passed on to consumers. It's passed on to the people who are putting their recyclables out. Yeah, both cities as well as businesses. Um, one uh, small waste company estimates that the cost of solid waste management uh, in the United States, um, because of these large companies, is 30% higher uh, than it should be. Um, and uh, there are companies out there uh, proving this. Uh, um, I don't know the numbers, the profit ratios of these companies, but I do know that very smart companies are are taking away market share. One one company that uh, we've been looking at, a company called Roadrunner, um, is a relatively new company. They're mostly in the mid-Atlantic area, and they do a tremendous job of working with commercial uh, uh, enterprises uh, to do real source separation, keep the glass, paper, and and other things separate, and they collect them separately and deliver them directly to end markets or efficient processing centers, and they revenue share uh, with the companies. Uh, whereas if you have a large uh, waste company taking your materials, even if you recycle a lot, uh, the, your price for services from these companies is not going to go down. Whereas if you go to a company like Roadrunner and you're recycling a lot and you're getting revenue share, the amount of money, uh, amount of uh, waste and money that you have to pay to a large hauler is greatly diminished. So the more source separation, uh, the lower the cost and the, the better the bottom line of these companies. So it seems sort of unfortunate. You know, I, I think about this. Uh, and, and even in my own community in Minneapolis, Minnesota, you mentioned Eureka, they serve St. Paul, which is our neighboring yes. community. Uh, and Minneapolis Waste Management has the garbage and recycling contract for the city. And wouldn't you know it, we did switch from separating our recyclables, uh, I'd say five years ago, to uh, you know a single stream where we've got one big bin that uh, we're filling up every week. Um, and at first it seemed like, Hey, this is such a great deal. Like instead of having, I mean, previously we separated everything. I mean, we had nine or 10 different little bins or bags, uh, and it was quite a lot of work, uh, to do that. Although we kind of got used to it. Um, and now we just do this one huge bin and I suspect that, um, it's probably not going to be uh, a good deal for the city in the long run, because as you say, there's no advantage to recycling more at this point because the materials are not even going to be of high enough quality that they can be sold, especially now that China has stopped taking them. The recyclables from the Minnesota, excuse me, Minneapolis, um, are processed by Eureka. Um, and they're doing a good job. It's a relatively small-scale operation, roughly 200 tons um, uh, per day. And um, the reason that Eureka's facility exists is because these folks were very smart, uh, the Eureka uh, people. Uh, they realized that recycling as an escape valve from landfills and incineration is under threat because Waste Management Inc. Uh, was shooting for uh, building their own processing center and capturing all the materials themselves. 
and and in fact, that actually happened. The county, Ramsey County, Murph shut down, and Waste Management Inc. Um, had one of their uh, operations there. But what Eureka did, it went to its end markets, um, paper, mostly the paper companies that were buying their paper, got uh, uh, capital from those to build their own Murph, and are now paying off that capital as as they operate. And because Eureka in um, St. Paul did this, they had the facility. And they won the contract for processing in uh, in Minneapolis. So what what Eureka has done was to establish the escape valve for reasonable prices and uh, and good recycling. And uh, one other comment I'll make, John, uh, you mentioned that uh, separating into six or seven uh, bags uh, uh, is a is a pain in the neck, if you will. Um, but uh, very few communities ask citizens to do that. Most dual stream systems just ask you to uh, keep two separations, paper uh, and all the other mixed materials. And um, dual stream recycling, which I just described, takes about two minutes per person per week in a family to participate in, which is not a burden. And in fact, it's an educational opportunity for children in the household. Well, I certainly know that my kids uh, are pretty good at learning their bins. We also have a uh, curbside organics collection here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's actually pretty exciting for them because we know that the, the, the trash bin is for just about nothing. Um, yeah. And they certainly don't take as much out as a result of that. So, you know, I wanted to pivot a little bit. You know, I, I, there's been a lot of kind of negative coverage about China. And we've talked about a lot of the challenges uh, in terms of the control of the waste stream and you know uh, that the, and and then sort of the calling the question that China has done here. I'm really curious. Uh, you know, China has essentially said, you know, we're going to slam the brakes on this centralized model of high volume, low quality recycling collection. What's the opportunity for cities? You know, for example, what are some strategies cities can use to reduce or divert waste to kind of avoid that more centralized system? Uh, and 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 then what else can they do around recycling? The, the article you mentioned on, on single stream has a, a list of about eight or nine things that cities can do. Um, but I would say the two most important things are three. One is to uh, consider what's called a pay-as-you-throw system or a unit pricing, just as a household buys electricity or natural gas, um, depending it pays for what it uses. Uh, a pay-as-you-throw or unit pricing allows uh, families to just pay for the amount of garbage that they put out, not recyclables or organics if they compost in the backyard or as you just described, it's, it's curbside side pickup. So um, moving to uh, unit pricing uh, could uh, within one year double uh, your recycling rate and it also increases your, your uh, backyard composting rate because uh, or your participation in, in curbside compost because every time you get rid of your materials through recycling or composting, it means you pay less. Mm -hmm. um, one city, a uh, city of about oh, 75,000 people, Worcester, Massachusetts, um, since they went to unit pricing 20 years ago, they've saved uh, $10 million from their budget uh, because of avoided disposal fees at landfills and incineration. So pay-as-you-throw or unit pricing is one thing that is an immediate help. Uh, focusing on compost is uh, another because um, composting, if you do it yourself in your backyard, you eliminate 15% of your household waste stream. It never enters the waste stream. And, of course, um, 
composting curbside, uh, you need more centralized facilities. We recommend about two to 300 tons per day as a maximum for composting source-separated organics. And the third thing that's important is that there needs to be in-town or in-city processing. None of this shipping uh, recyclables 35 or 40 miles away. Um, There are a number of of bad elements in that. I'll get to that. But the key is that whether it's dual stream or single stream, uh, if it's scaled properly, if the facility is owned uh, by people who want to recycle, uh, not just divert materials, that's critical. So scale and ownership are important. And then finally, uh, quality is important. Um, Single stream materials can be recycled um, uh, at the proper scale. Um, And if you don't do it at the proper scale, you wind up in a situation that DC is in. Right now, DC is sending uh, glass along with other materials in single stream format. Glass is about 20% by weight of the uh, recycled fraction of a city's um, materials. Um, So right now, DC is sending 20% of its waste excuse me, of its recyclables uh, 35 miles away, and the system cannot recover glass in a a format that can be used by industry. Glass is used by uh, making bottles, uh, sandblasting, cement manufacturing, and and, uh, construction uh, fill, clean fill. Uh, It's a very value material. It's homegrown. Uh, You could recycle it forever. Uh, But right now, D.C.'s glass, for which they pay a lot of money to ship up there, collect and ship up there, uh, cannot be recycled. It has to be used as a landfill cover by Waste Management, Inc. So the city is paying a lot of money to get the glass up there and get no benefit from glass recycling. So can you you explain a little bit, like, what what is the problem? Is it the fact that... It's breaking when it's shipping. Is there? Is it the way that it gets mixed in with other things? Why is the glass unable to be used for you know by industry or in a high quality fashion once it's done in this way? It's both. It's both those reasons. Um, glass is a material that breaks, so it, every time you move it around, you risk breaking glass. Uh, it goes from your uh, household bin into your recycled uh, cart, into a a truck that uses hydraulics to squeeze the material. Then it gets dumped on a cement floor, and then it gets processed some more. So you're breaking the glass as you collect it and transport it. Uh, And that glass uh, contaminates um, a lot of the other material, glass, uh, excuse me, paper uh, and plastic. Um, As as I said before, the material uh, can be recovered from single stream if it's done properly. Uh, but if you're focused on mass throughput, you just process everything. You get the glass. Waste management has a free, uh, a free material for landfill cover. So there's really no ins- – and they don't have to pay any rebate to the cities on glass recycling if the glass is sold to industry. So um, you have a system that encourages the large uh, big waste to continue processing in this sloppy manner without transparency uh, and without, uh, without efficiency. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really helpful in terms of understanding it. Recycling is very popular in the United States, as as you know, um, but it really is um, it's not given the respect it's due, if you don't mind me uh, using that example. But if D.C. right now has a recycling rate of, of 20%, if that uh, rate uh, over the next few years goes to 60%, many cities are doing 60% uh, uh, through recycling and composting, the uh, greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions 
uh, savings from increased recycling at the 60% level uh, in, in the DC examples is the equivalent of all the pollution from automobiles and uh, electricity generation that's used in the city. So those are tremendous benefits uh, for uh, climate control, uh, uh, keeping uh, the, the uh, heat of, of the uh, earth down, and any city can use the tactics used by the advanced cities to get to 60% recycling or more. Uh, the it, it's all state of the art. It's all known right now. The United States has a 34, 35 percent recycling rate. If that rate is doubled, uh, you can imagine the incredible uh, greenhouse gas savings. The other important part of of, of uh, recycling and composting for greenhouse gas emissions is the use of compost. There's a wonderful group of people out in Marin County. I think it's called the Marin County Compost Project, in which they've shown that putting uh, significant amounts of compost uh, on uh, arable lands actually uh, reduces greenhouse gases. Um, so these are very important reasons for the economy of cities, but also for cities to reduce their environmental impact on the earth. If you have a city that has single stream right now, and I think there's obviously going to be differences because as you pointed out for Minneapolis, where we have a single stream, a single bin for recyclables, we have local processing at a reasonable scale. But if you don't have that, if you have single stream and you're shipping it a long distance, what's the right first step? Do you try to switch to dual stream? Do you, I mean, do you really need to get that local infrastructure as well as what's the first thing that you need to do? There are four or five cities in the United States in the past month uh, that have decided to switch to dual stream. I mentioned some of them in the piece. I, we've been getting information uh, on others. But let's take D.C. Uh, as an example. It's a city of uh, 600,000 people. It's a obviously a large city. Um, what's happening in D.C., uh, it's, e it's easier, in my opinion, for D.C. to contract with a sensibly scaled local single stream uh, processor than it is for the city to go back to dual stream. I'd like to see the city go back to dual stream. But what's happening is that the cost of recycling in D.C. is so high that it has provided an opening for at least one company, which we're aware of, that's building a, uh, a uh, properly scaled single stream processing center uh, literally on D.C.'s border in Prince George's County. It's like 100 yards from the D.C. border. And um, it's, it's obvious to me that, um, that D.C. planners should um, put out an RFP when the current contract uh, with Waste Management Inc. expires and encourage these smaller uh, MRFs to uh, get the contract to process locally. Uh, in addition to this one company that's now locating uh, here, as I mentioned, there's another company in Manassas, uh, Virginia, which is about 20, 25 miles away. Obviously, the closer uh, the facility is to the city, the less expensive it's going to be. Um, but uh, D.C. is also uh, setting up a curbside compost program. Uh, we have a very active backyard compost program, uh, thanks to new legislation passed uh, this year in 2018, which provides uh, monetary incentives to households that do uh, compost in their backyards or side yards. And as I mentioned before, uh, it's very wise of a city to spend 50 bucks per household to get them to do backyard composting. The 50 bucks is for a professional recycling bin, which of course you could 
don't need, you can build your own. Uh, but as I said, for every household that composts in its backyard, uh, you have um, 15% less waste coming out of that household. So a $50 investment to eliminate 15% of the waste forever is quite a bargain. Um, I would say that the most important thing is in-town processing, create jobs, proper scale, good quality materials. Uh, it could be a single stream. It could be dual stream if the owner and the scale are proper. And I, I must uh, give a, a shout out to two of our close allies, Susan Kinsella and Rich Gertman, who wrote a piece, uh, which is footnoted uh, in my article on the guidelines for sensible uh, single stream recycling. It includes uh, compaction ratios. It includes uh, not using cement floors, using, you know, sort of astroturf floors. Uh, and it also recommends the uh, configuration of equipment at which point in the processing you take out glass. The, 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 obviously, it's, it's good to get the glass out as early as possible. Uh, as soon as the glass is out, it's not a threat to the other materials. And also glass is a threat to the machinery. Uh, glass shards get involved, they get stuck in the oil and uh, gum up the works, uh, if you don't mind my informal language. Um, <laughs> it, it's in-town processing, it's composting, and it's uh, unit pricing, uh, I think can get any city to 50% recycling and even more. So you mentioned something I thought was really important to tease out a little bit more about these new uh, processing facilities being built near Washington, D.C. and the opportunity for the city to do better with its single stream program. Uh, I did want to note, by the way, we'll have a link to the article that you published, Neil, as well as this, uh, that other piece you just mentioned on guidelines for single stream recycling on the show page so that folks can find it. What, one thing I'm curious about, because this also happens in the energy business as well, is um, the contracts can be for a long time. And so I'm curious, how quickly can cities make changes to their waste hauling business? Or are there sometimes really long contracts where they're stuck in a system that may not be to their benefit. Th that is a very important insight. Um, uh, we're lucky in the sense that the recycling, in DC, that the recycling contract um, is only one year. The original contract was three years and there were one year, uh, one year expansion possibilities. Well, uh, we're right now, uh, 2019 is the last year of our contract for recycling with Waste Management Inc. And that means a year from now in September uh, 19, the DC DPW, Department of Public Works, has to issue an RFP for future processing. And uh, we're assuming that uh, other companies would, will bid. We've talked to the company that's building this new facility. They're planning on bidding. Um, so uh, we're, we're lucky there. So the length of contracts is very important. Um, and you have to do a balancing. Uh, you don't want to give a company too long on their contract because you want competition to come in. On the other hand, you want the company to have enough security in their contract um, to uh, make a, a decent investment and make the system work. Um, so three years seems to be a reasonable uh, length of contract for these recycling and garbage uh, 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 services. Um, and some cities would add a one-year option either on, for the company or for the city to renew. Neil, do you know, uh, other than D.C., what is a common contract length for other cities? Like, are, are other cities signing much longer contracts, like five years or even 10 years? Or is what D.C. has done relatively common in that, you know, maybe I won't be able to change things tomorrow if I got elected to city council or was elected mayor, but 
that you know within my term I would be able to make changes uh, to improve recycling policy? I would say what uh, three years with a one-year option is is typical. Um, but as I just mentioned, uh, contracts for different services have different lengths. Right. Uh, why um, the contract for recycling obviously is three years plus one, and we're in that one year now. The contracts for handling garbage uh, uh, out of city and, and city garbage, uh, those contracts are longer. I don't see any reason why they should be, which is why I and DC Environmental Network and other environmental groups are urging uh, the city council and the DPW not to sign a, a long contract and to put it out for bid so that the price uh, of $8 and change uh, rises to maybe $35, $40 so the city uh, is collecting uh, market rate for using public services. Um, there's one unique city, and that's San Francisco. And this is a very interesting story. San Francisco is uh, served in recycling and garbage by a company called Recology. Well, Recology used to be Sunset Scavengers, which was a cooperative of Italian immigrant businesses in the 1930s. It could have gone back to the 20s. And uh, for reasons uh, that have been researched, but I'm not quite familiar with the history, in the 1930s, the city charter was rewritten so that Sunset Scavengers had the exclusive right forever to serve uh, the city of San Francisco for garbage and then recycling services. So uh, San Francisco is unique in that it has a forever contract with this one company. Uh, Sunset Scavengers eventually evolved into uh, this new company called Recology. Interesting. So most folks will have some flexibility, but your mileage may vary if you come from San Francisco. That is correct. And um, it, it's a very interesting situation. Um, San Francisco's recycling close to 80%. So is Berkeley, California across the bay. And um, both cities use completely different systems. Uh, San Francisco is a monopoly. Uh, but the monopoly is serving the city well. In Berkeley, the recycling system is comprised of about six different entities, three nonprofits, two for-profits, and one city agency, and is completely decentralized, the exact opposite of San Francisco. And yet both cities have very, very high recycling rates, which proves that uh, each city is unique and that there are many ways to accomplish good recycling and composting. So, Neil, I'd like to wrap up by just kind of opening it to uh, a hypothetical here. So about a third of Americans live in a city with a population of 100,000 or more. So let's just say you're in a community of 100,000 to 200,000 people. Um, right now, all of your waste is being landfilled. So you're, you're starting with a clean slate. What are the first three things that you do? And I think you've kind of already alluded to this, but what are the first three things that you do, the first three policies that you would put into place uh, to help the city you know, save money and create jobs and, and shift away f uh, from landfilling to waste recovery? Um, the, um, the, the way professional zero waste planners approach this is to look at that hypothetical city of 100,000 using a landfill, and they identify the voids. What's missing from this picture that's needed to get to high levels of recycling composting? And, um, and you identify them. Is it mandatory? Is it unit pricing, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and uh, once you have that analysis, uh, then you start saying, okay, what do we need to solve this void? How can we fill this void? And as you mentioned in, um, in my summary earlier, it's unit pricing, composting, and in-town in recycling. Uh, there are 
are a number of other things that these cities can do. Um, one of the things we recommend the most is to uh, is to build up and attract from the outside, if necessary, companies that refurbish products, not recycle them, but refurbish appliances, mattresses, furniture, cars, electronic scrap, uh, textiles, uh, textiles, uh, refurbishing textiles into new styles is a major trend uh, in, in the fashion industry. In fact, there was a major article on it a couple of weeks ago in the Sunday paper here in D.C. So um, the, uh, there are specialty companies, uh, uh, building deconstruction companies. There's a wonderful uh, group out in uh, Lane County, Oregon, Eugene, uh, St. Vincent de Paul, that specializes in creating jobs for the uh, hard to employ people and giving them the social services, the housing services, the training uh, that are necessary um, uh, for them to, uh, to, to, uh, to do well uh, in the economy. And, and they've uh, created 500, 600 jobs in their, in their system. Um, uh, there's another classic example in Baltimore, the Second Chance, where the city and Baltimore, Second Chance, a nonprofit, created some unique contracts uh, giving uh, uh, any time a job is open at uh, Second Chance Building Materials Company, uh, it's filled by someone on the what's called the TANIF rolls, uh, T-A-N-I-F. I forget what it stands for, but it's basically the welfare rolls, if you will. And um, if these people who are recruited through this system from the city uh, complete a 10-week training program, uh, they are guaranteed a full-time job with health insurance and many other uh, services. Well, when we started helping that company in 2003, they had six employees. Now they have a, a 175, and uh, all of those new employees have been recruited from the hard to employ. So as, as um, the people at Second Chance say, we're not only uh, uh, saving materials and products, we're saving people, which is literally true. Um, and these repair groups, St. Vincent de Paul, Second Chance, there's a national deconstruction a nonprofit called the Reuse People. They have branches in 16 different cities. These um, companies uh, not only create good jobs and divert bulky materials from the landfill, but they have incredible social impact, particularly e-scrap, electronic scrap reuse. Uh, there's one company called Recycle Force uh, in uh, Indianapolis. The national recidivism rate is about 75, 76 percent. Um, in these reuse companies, um, speaking about recycle force, the recidivism rate of their workforce is 25, 26 percent. And that re dramatic reduction in people, young men and women going back to prison is an incredible uh, savings to, uh, in terms of expenses, but also uh, reduced crime, uh, reduced uh, hardship from criminal activity, etc., for both the victim and, and the perpetrator. So the social impact of, of reuse um, is dramatic, and I point, always point out that in Eugene, Oregon, the cost of living for low-income people has gone down about 3% because through their 13 thrift stores, they sell all their refurbished materials. Uh, so in, not only are they creating good jobs for people, but they're providing people with furniture and appliances and clothing, etc., um, at, at a very reduced cost. In fact, their policy is if you can't afford it, just take it. 
Um, so these companies have tremendous reuse companies have a tremendous social as well as economic impact. And we recommend that when cities have warehouses, own or control warehouses, that they turn these over to these reuse companies. And this is exactly what happened with uh, Second Chance. Not only does Second Chance have a contract to train workers, it has a contract with the city to go into any school building or public building that's scheduled for takedown. And uh, the workers can, uh, what's called cherry picking, pick out the very valuable materials before demolition. Um, the other uh, aspect of their contract is Second Chance now owns 300,000 square feet of show space and storage space in downtown Baltimore, formerly owned by the city, now transferred to Second Chance. So these folks have uh, worked with the city. Uh, the benefits to the city are uh, dramatic, and the benefits to the workers and patrons of the company are, are also dramatic. Uh, so I would say setting up a reuse center a warehouse of it made available. Each reuse business needs 20,000 square feet and will employ about 15 to 20 workers. So one warehouse uh, can become a major reuse center for a city or even a region. Well, Neil, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me to paint a picture of what cities can do differently. And I would be remiss if I didn't, at the end of our interview, ask you if you have any reading recommendations, uh, something you've been reading recently that you would recommend to our listeners. I would recommend two books. Um, uh, uh, three books, uh, all written by friends of the Institute, by the way. Uh, one is uh, Plastic Ocean by Charles um, Moore, Captain Charles Moore. Uh, there's a revised issue coming up. The book is about four years old. It mm -hmm. describes what's going on in the ocean. Uh, the other book is uh, uh, Zero Waste, uh, One Community at a Time, Saving the Planet, One Community at a Time, by our other good friend, Paul Connett, Dr. Paul Connett, um, a retired professor of chemistry who's an indefatigable uh, anti-incineration pro-recycling campaigner throughout the world. And the, uh, the, the, the third book I would recommend, uh, particularly for um, uh, families that have uh, young kids, would be Worms Eat My Garbage uh, by Mary Applehoff, plus her sequel, Worms Eat More of My Garbage, uh, which explains how every family can be composting their uh, food waste. Uh, either in the basement or in the backyard, and how to teach how it impacts kids um, uh, growing up in that household. Um, uh, my kids, who are now uh, 35 and 40, still compost, and uh, John, I bet your kids will be composting when they grow up and have their own household. I would like to think so, Neil. As long as they also have solar on the roof, that's my <laughs> Of course. The composting and solar go together. Well, Neil, thanks so much for taking the time. It's great talking to you and uh, great to hear from you. Okay, thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. And once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. This show is produced by Hibba Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Lisa Gonzalez. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.